ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Well, welcome again. It's another Books of the Year podcast. It's two in a month. Um, Imagine that. Two in a month. Wow. How did did that actually happen? (laughs) We're doing so well, I think. You know, I mean, obviously we're not going to do another one until October, but, you know, I think we're doing well. Well, um, Joe Browning Rowe was on last time, uh, on on our last podcast, and she's number five in the charts. Is she? Wow. In the Times bestsellers. So... Uh So I th- I kind of think we're largely responsible yep, yep. for that in some way. I mean, obviously her writing and yeah, you know, I mean there ideas, is that as well. It being a great book that that probably yeah, helps as well. Lady Belinda Princess says, uh, "I read this is Joe's book. I read it in twenty four hours. I cried for the final six chapters. Cried for the fifty minutes after finishing the book. It's my book of the year." Good for you. Yes, you know, it's very, very good for us. Uh, Paula read it in less than 24 hours. Uh, Waterstones in Swansea. Well, this is exciting. Uh, Books of the Year has tipped A Terrible Kindness by Joe Browning for the Booker Prize, which I did not actually. What I said is it would win the Costa. No. I think... So what is the Costa? Remind us. Well, the Costa is a Book of the Year sponsored by Costa, you know, and in general picks... Uh, more popular books than the Booker. You know, the Booker is super literary, and um, and the Costa oh, right. is books that people actually read. There you go. That's in in broad brushstrokes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Justin Webb is going to be uh, our guest. Uh, him off Radio Four. Uh, he has written a memoir called um, "The Gift of a Radio: My Childhood and Other Train Wrecks." Uh, which uh, we're waiting for him to to join us. But him being a today, he was on the Today program this morning. So maybe he's just having uh, a little sharpener uh, in the bar. I don't know. Well, I remember back in the day, my one of my very first jobs was being uh, a runner on the Today program. I was just out of university, and they I don't think they do anymore. But they used to have a trolley of um, pastries. 
And there was no alcohol, from what I remember, because it was obviously even that early in the morning. And it's worth saying this was during the 90s. But they would have a huge amount uh, to be able, for for the Brian Redhead, who was presenting at that point, would be able to absolutely throw himself at this trolley after uh, after finishing the programme. So there is a chance that Justin is is, is knee-deep in Pano Chocolat at the moment. Um, yes. Uh, that could be the case. It was always a strange thing. Some programmes at the BBC get catering and some don't. Certainly at, at um, Radio mm. 2, there'd be David Jacobs was, would have sandwiches on a trolley. It was like obviously some ancient contractual agreement. Uh, yeah. If, if you were a veteran yeah. broadcaster, then you got sandwiches. Did you get ever get anything at Radio 1? Because obviously you were at a time there at Radio 1 when uh, they, they might well have started wheeling trolleys through whatever Radio 1's broadcasting. No, the only thing I got uh, was on my very first day at Radio 1. When I was actually still employed by Radio Nottingham, I got given a an al- I got a bag like a shoulder bag from A and M Records, and in it there was a dope kit for rolling dope cigarettes, and I was <laughs> what? Yeah, so I thought, hang on, this is literally day one. I was doing two weeks depping on lunchtime. <laughs> Gary Davis, I thought I can't, this might be a stitch up. Also, what if this is some toxic journalist? It's trying to stitch me up. So I went upstairs, yeah. found Doreen Davis, who was like the number two at Radio 1, and said, Doreen, I've been given, there's no dope in it, but clearly this is how, you know, this is how you roll your own cigarettes with uh, some wacky backy. So she she said, thanks very much. Anyway, that night I went to, or it might have been a couple of days later, went to see Supertramp at the Royal Abbott Hall, also from A&M Records. And everyone everyone was on the, was on those kind of long, strange... Cigarettes, but <clears throat> being from local radio, we didn't do that kind of thing. So I just sort of uh, no. I'm going to no. put this in my radio memoir. Well, I can I can see because uh, Justin's just popped up on our screen that uh, uh, Justin Webb has has joined us. Hello, Justin. How are you? Very nice. To Very see good you, to see you, Simon. Thank you for having me. Now you can't actually see Matt because he hasn't got the bandwidth, but he's there, and he was just telling us how his one of his first jobs in radio was being a runner on the Today program, uh, no. keeping Brian Redhead in pace. Oh, yes, yes, back in the Blimey, day, that was yeah. that was quite a time ago. It I was, also was, coincided yeah. with Brian Redhead for a year or so because I was a reporter on the program, so that would have been the mid eighties, I suppose. Right, so I was the mid-90s, um, and the only thing of any note that I did in my two weeks there was set up an interview with um, Bobby Robson because Graham Taylor was about to lose his job as England boss. And uh, and I, I had one idea in one of the sort of editorial meetings of let's get Bobby Robson on. And basically, I was met by a room full of people who had no clue who Bobby Robson was or Graham Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> or football, or anything. And I thought, right, okay, it looks like I've got a free hit here because no one else appears to know what's going on. I mean, I'm already I'm already nervous about this football talk because anyone who listens to the day programme knows that Justin gets very, very annoyed yeah. when football is discussed and rugby yeah. isn't. I, I'm, so I just, I'm, I, I, that, that, that moment that you brought forward that guy, whoever it was, was probably the high spot of your career. It would have been the low spot of mine if I'd had to deal with it because I really, I still find it really difficult because I just know nothing about the sport. And um, I, I, I think actually, it's, I now know why we cover it so much. It was that intervention from you that started all those years ago. That's this right. kind of ghastly obsession with football. <laughs> yeah, it's all down to I me. Just, I just can't understand it. Pick up the ball it and is terrific, run with it. 
We're never, you, you know, you're never allowed to editorialize, but there are some things where some <laughs> yes. radio presenters, you just know the things that you're going to get an opinion on. And if you prefer rugby, then that's fine. You can talk about that. And I always used to know that John Humphreys would like to talk about organic farming and mm. things like that. But yeah, we were just I'm wondering, Justin, do you get pastries still? Oh, on your God, show? no, no. I mean, we're lucky to, to, to get in through the door in the morning, let alone get any kind of fancy treatment afterwards. Um, no, all the pastries went a long time ago for COVID reasons, if no, none other, but they're not coming back. Um, yeah, we used to get f- fancy pastries. Someone with a trolley used to wheel it in um, and uh, all sorts of um, fancy palaver that's all gone the way of the flesh, <laughs> I fear. Yes, absolutely. Uh, anyway, uh, Justin is here not to reflect on his life in radio because what's interesting about his uh, his memoir, which is The Gift of a Radio, My Childhood and Other Trainwrecks, is that you? You. This is the stuff that we. This is your your upbringing, really, Justin. It reminded me a bit of Stephen Fry's book Moab is My Washpot, which was kind of like all his, all his school days, also being sent to private school. But his had a prison record in there uh, as well, which you don't, <laughs> um, as far as you're reporting. Tell us what the idea was and the what you're trying to tell us in the gift. The of The idea was to say something about the 1970s, to say something about my own peculiar childhood, and it was very eccentric, to put it mildly, but also to try to say something which I wanted to do about just the way people treat each other and how it is that all of us are more complicated, more complex as human beings than we seem when you just know the kind of broad brush um, introductory observations as it were like x went to a private school and does this or y is gay and does that or you know you there is so much about us that particularly in the social media age we don't properly explore so my book if i was a novelist i'd have written a a novel but i don't have the imagination or or um or the literary ability but it's 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 an effort to say that people um need to be kinder to each other, but also to explore the kind of weirdness of human interactions. And of course, all of it set in the 1970s, which was the weirdest of of decades. Yeah, I want to ask you about the 1970s in a bit once we've established how weird you actually think it it was. Could we we start just where you begin the book with with this? I mean, it's the most extraordinary attention-grabbing... opening chapter where you talk about uh, I think you're six or seven years old and you're at the seaside can you just tell us that story I'm six or seven years old at the seaside my stepfather is swimming out to sea and I distinctly remember wanting him not to be able to swim back and it wasn't a kind of violent sudden feeling it was just when I saw the waves going over his head. He was actually quite a strong swimmer. He'd swum quite a long way out. I remember thinking, goodness, I hope that's it, and he doesn't come back in. And that was um, certainly one of the oddnesses of my childhood. I lived with a stepfather who um, uh, was um, mentally ill and did me no harm and did my mum no harm, but was separate from us. And in the 1970s, that was a huge deal, that kind of business of dealing in a family with mental illness, but also dealing with the idea 
as a child that you had in your house someone who you didn't who didn't belong there and that was something that my my mother encouraged so yeah that was that is how the book starts and it's how it is one of my earliest memories actually that that memory of wanting him not to be there and just to set the tone for a lot of the book justin you you talk about how you remember that a lot of the time at home you were walking on eggshells and that your mother was unhappy and that you needed to be wonderful could you just explain a bit about those eggshells you were walking on. And I think this is something that a lot of people in my circumstances or similar circumstances find. You grow up as a child, and I see this with my own kids who've grown up relatively normally with each other and in a, in a relatively happy home. But in homes that are intense, the business of being a child is not possible. You can't have the normal tantrums. You can't have the normal breakdowns. You can't have the normal fun because constantly you are subliminally, you don't know this at the time, but looking back on it, subliminally, you know that you are vital in keeping the whole show on the road. And that puts you in a position, a kind of adult position of having to deal with stuff that no child should should have to deal with. And I, I looking back on it, and reading the letters I used to send home from boarding school and all the rest of it, I was um, in a position of performing, actually, for my mother um, from a really early age. And it just fascinates me. And again, the, the book, to be absolutely clear, the book is not an angry book. Um, I hope it's funny in bits, it's, and it's certainly not an attack on my dear, wonderful mum, or indeed on anyone else. But there is this kind of sense in which you realise as you get older my goodness, there are ways of growing up that are not proper childhood. And that, that was certainly the case for me. And potentially, um, it has an effect on you as an adult, which which I think, you know, we're, we're all messed up, as Larkin didn't quite say, he used a, a, a tougher word, but we are all messed up by our, our, our parents. So this is certainly not unique to me. Your circumstances mould you. and and But I, I do think in that circumstance where you are looking after a parent, a parent a parent's relationship is so intense it does have a lifelong effect i i thoroughly enjoyed your book i think it's excellent justin and uh if we we've we've talked um or we've touched briefly on uh the sections of the book that deal with your mother and with your stepfather i think the 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 section that is going to stay with most people after they've read this book is your experience at sidcott sidcott school and um, I think I think I think it's worth exploring this because the word that I wrote down as I was writing it was cruel, and but it's cruel in I, I can't remember whether this was a phrase that you used or whether one that just occurred to me as I was reading it. But an, an incompetently run prison camp is is what is is the impression you've given of your <laughs> yes. of, of your experience there. And I, and I want to be yeah. clear here: it's not sadism; it's just just ordinary well I, I suppose what we would call neglect and it it brought to mind to me that there's I, I remember um john cleese in an interview once about um faulty towers and he said a basil faulty would be fine running at a hotel he would be an excellent hotelier if it weren't for the guests getting in the way and it felt the same way with 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 sidcott school at the time that you were there and your experience of it because you're very very careful to say look this is just my experience I, i'm sure the, ch the, the school has changed enormously since since i was there mm. but it was 
it was the fact that this was not sadism. This was just children being let loose. The very idea that at the uh, at the start of your time there, you would have a chat from, um, I can't remember who it was, I think it was one of the teachers, saying, we do not want to hear about bullying. If you're bullied, deal with it. Mm, we don't yeah. want to hear. That is astonishing. Yeah. The very idea, you know, if you were sending your children to that school and you knew that they were being told, I don't want to hear if you're being bullied. And, and, and yes, at the same time, Easy access to cider and let's all go potholing. Unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. So, uh, yeah, I, just uh, just talk to us a little bit more about about your time at Sidcot because, as I say, I think that's what is going to stick with most yeah. people. Well, and one thing I'd just add to what you've just said: run by Quakers. Mm. Uh, and and as you know, when Woody Allen wanted to point out how weedy he was, he said, "I was so weedy, I was beaten up by Quakers." Quakers are the, <laughs> the absolute apogee of of peacefulness and decency and they genuinely are and they genuinely were actually but they just lost control um partly because it was the 70s and nobody cared an awful lot about how people dealt with kids um we hadn't properly invented childhood by the 70s however recent that decade was it really was so totally different in in that respect and partly also and i try to make this point in the book you're absolutely right there wasn't sadism and there actually wasn't the cruelty from masters that many other kind of posher public schools would have would have had and would have had right into the 70s but what there was that i don't think possibly we do talk enough about was a kind of cruelty among the children, sort of Lord of the Flies thing mm. going on, um, where if you leave children to their own devices, they don't always turn out to be very nice to each other. And it's it's sugarcoating to think that they will. Uh, and we weren't, and we genuinely we weren't. And, and, and there's that, that kind of sense of um, the, the decencies that you would now expect. I mean, my kids just say to me, why did you put up with it? And you know, I find that in a way difficult to answer, but in a way quite easy to answer because I have to say to them, look, none of those kind of things that we now assume are absolutely right, like don't bully in a school, in a workplace, anywhere. None of those things were widely accepted in the 1970s. It just was, um, well, it was another country. It was a different country. And I, I just want to come back on 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 this particular subject because people who listen to this podcast will have heard us uh, talk to Joe Browning Rowe about terrible kindness in in the last episode, and that dealt with a with a boarding school as well, and it didn't paint it in a particularly uh, glowing light. We've also had in the last few few months because of events that everyone's aware of. Um, uh, so, so something of a sort of public judgment on on those kind of private education establishments and mm. the the sort of link to entitlement. And I'm interested in your take on that, having been having been on the front line yourself. Yeah, that's interesting, actually, the entitlement thing, because my school was pretty crappy academically. In fact, it was absolutely dreadful, frankly. And I I I, I think I would have done better uh, in an ordinary school. Um, but on the other hand, when I failed O-level maths, not once, not twice, uh, but three times, and, and actually got went down a grade, I was then tutored by someone in order that I could eventually pass it, when the only thing that they thought I could possibly be any good at was a, a thing called British Constitution, this incredibly dry um, O-level 
Um, I did that. Did you? <laughs> very good. Well, uh, yes, I did. you will know all about the Fulton Report of 1968 then, which has probably <laughs> been very useful. It accounts for your success as well, uh, word Simon. Word for word. I word for say. word. So, so, but there was one master who said to me, look, Webb, you're hopeless at everything. Um, uh, I, I'm going to teach you. I know that you're interested in politics. I'm going to teach you British constitution and I'm going to do it one-to-one. Uh, and it's those kind of things that you almost don't notice as a kid. So in this absolutely collapsing hellhole of a place, um, it, it, it's it's easy then for me to say um, I, I wasn't privileged because the place was a nightmare and the loos were disgusting and there was a lot of bullying and all, all the rest of it. But on the other hand, it is fair to say as well, well, you know, just occasionally... Um, almost in in a state of serendipity, something would work, and that probably wouldn't have been the case in a kind of bigger, more basic establishment where if you'd been as lazy and useless as I was, you'd have, you'd have just been discarded. You um, yes, and you talk about say you say it was grim, it was lost, a place of despair. That the Quakers might have believed in kindness and peace, but it was a school in which children were tortured. So as Matt says, it's a very very striking section of the book and you make it clear i mean it's obviously when you read read the book how much um how much love you had for your mother and she for you but you make it very clear that sending a child away at that age was a crime you then say sorry mum but sending you away was a crime yeah i don't know what she well i sort of do know what she was thinking she was was doing that thing which i i also mentioned in the book the kind of film kind of Second World War film where there's a village and it's about to be raised by the Nazis and people are kind of chucking their kids onto the last wagon to get out of out of the place and uh, more in hope than anything else but expect hoping that number one they'll be they'll survive the journey but number two some kindly stranger will eventually take them on and look after them and and I think I think I was being chucked on the wagon really I, I think she felt that our home life was so peculiar this peculiar silent little box that we lived in with my stepfather, that she de- desperately wanted something to give me some sense of the outside world. And she chose the school. And I, of course, because I was a performer for her, was never able to say to her, God, it's awful. I hate the place. There are some rather one little letters home where I say, I'm feeling much better now. Thank you. Um, and I'm listening to my radio and I'm going to write some poetry, rather stiff little letters that I used to send send back. But actually, she never knew the, um, the, the, the horror of it. And I never and uh, I never would have told her. So, you know, on, on the one hand, uh, I think she would have done better not to send me. But on the other hand, I think she could say from the grave, look, you never warned me, you never told me it was yeah. what it was like. Which, again, my children just say, for God's sake, why didn't you just say that it wasn't that easy? And if people are expecting, Justin, if people are expecting this to be a book about the absence of a father, as in the absence of your biological father, Peter Woods, it's not, that is obviously mentioned, but it it's not that book, is it? Yeah, no, it's about the presence of a mother, um, uh, not the absence of a father. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I mentioned the oddness of his um, lack of presence, the... Um, uh, day that we sat down to watch the Morecambe and Wise Christmas programme where he appeared right at the end. You remember they got all these newsreaders on. It's a very famous edition. Um, and he sings the song right at the end. There ain't nothing like a dame. And he's got a very kind of deep voice and it's a big moment. And that I was watching that with my mum and my stepfather and this kind of weird sort of silence. 
And um, as I say in the book, someone cleared their throat. I think my mum cleared her throat and said he had shoes like the Queen Mary. Uh, and then we put the TV away in the corner and we never really spoke about it uh, again. So it, 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 was, it was an odd absence. It occasionally became a slight presence. But the book is absolutely not about him. Um, it's, it's, it's about the, the strangeness of a life um, with a mother who was enormously, enormously um, loving, um, but also took the most peculiar uh, decisions. Uh, I'd like to ask you about silence, Justin, if I can, because it's very rare to hear, uh, I think particularly radio people, where silence is, means something has gone wrong. Um, there's a Radio 3 silence, which is <laughs> yeah, fine because yeah. you can have like five seconds before somebody says anything. But a silence anywhere else is problematic. But it, you are comfortable. I just think it's interesting. Maybe this is the Quaker education or the unusual upbringing that you had. But you are comfortable with silence and you are self-contained. Yeah. So can you explain a bit? Of yeah, that? I grew up in silence at home because... Um, my mother had a lot of migraines and didn't want noise, and I was really incapable of providing noise as a single child on on my own there. My stepfather was a sort of looming presence. He wasn't violent. He wasn't uh, unpleasant, but he didn't speak much, uh, and he would just sit in silence. They used to get two copies of the Guardian newspaper delivered in the morning so they could each have a copy, which they would read all day in silence. And um, there was a record player that would occasionally come on um, in order that they could play Bach, but you would have to be silent while you listened. In other words, everything was done in a very kind of gloomy, pedantic, plodding way. And that sense of silence, I think, then seeps into you. And it was accentuated by the school, where you had to be silent once a week for an hour, because that is the Quaker way. And I think it's left me... Dude, one of the things it's left me really... Uh, hamstrung by is an inability much to listen to podcasts because I did, I stick something on and then I think I put on a rugby podcast the other day and I halfway through I was really interested actually halfway through I just think oh god they're just babbling on I can't be bothered with this. <laughs> there, there is something in me that switches off any noise including the noise of podcasts or radio my wife sticks on the Today program in the morning when I'm not I'm, I'm not working and I'm here and I turn it off I just, I don't like people talking. Yes, I, I did read it the weekend that you think podcasts are self-indulgent and unedited. <laughs> um, well, well, you're you, welcome. Yes, well, here we go. Welcome, Justin Webb, <laughs> to a self-indulgent and unedited. <laughs> welcome to you're our dead right. I did say that, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I think a lot of, you see, see I, it's a serious point, actually. I think the art form is going to evolve. You are a broadcaster and you know what you're doing. Um, a lot of people who do podcasts just think they're going to stick it up and talk and people will listen. And I think actually, I think like all these things, I think we'll go through iterations where we'll think that's going to be the case, but actually people move away and move on. And I, I, I personally think that the... I mean, it's two things. It's me personally, my own um, failings as a listener, because I just can't be bothered to have anyone talking in the background. I don't particularly like the radio either, as I say. But I think there's also a kind of sense in which 
there's too much babble and not enough uh, um, properly compared talk about stuff. Um, and I, I wonder whether we're going to go back to more the live radio thing, I suppose, where there is a time constraint and a constraint in getting yourself across. And those things have the effect not of reducing conversation, not of reducing communication, but actually honing it and making, making it more pointed. I think what we've found with this is it's, it's, a, it's a completely different discipline um, between live radio and, and doing recorded podcasts. I want to about, we started off, Justin, by sort of uh, very uh, touchingly talking about rugby. And I want to bring us back to that um, because um, you do sort of touch on rugby in the book. And um, as I mentioned, my sort of, I've had two brushes with um, the Today programme. The first was, as I say, when I was fresh out of uh, uni and I uh, was just there as a runner. But I've also filled in for um, Gary Richardson as the uh, presenting the sport on, on the Today programme, very sporadically and only a couple of times when you've been presenting, Justin. But anyone who's presented the sport on the Today programme will know that there is a part of the show where Justin will sidle up to you and say, any chance of, uh, of mentioning the baths? score last night big win for Leicester Tigers <laughs> and you're like look I've got three and a half minutes and it's a Champions League night Justin do cut me some slack but I want I want to talk to you about rugby because we're as we're recording this now we are a few days away from the start of the Six mm -hmm. Nations which I would make an argument is is the shining light in the rugby calendar I'd argue far more uh, interest um, in this in this country, in the Six Nations, than there is in the Autumn Internationals, than there is in the uh, even in the World Cup. It is the big moment for rugby union, and I want to I want to talk to you about rugby's relationship with alcohol, because I think I I think there is there is something unhealthy going on in that sport. I'm not about to say that rugby is the only sport that has a problem with alcohol. Clearly, we all saw what was happening at the Euro 2020 final with uh, with bad behaviour and well, abhorrent behaviour and and people uh, drinking and and frankly using recreational drugs that that kind of thing. I'm not suggesting it's just rugby. However, it appears with rugby to be something that is absolutely ingrained within that sport. Anyone who's been to a club rugby game. Uh, and particularly to a, to an amateur game, and gone into the clubhouse afterwards, will will witness mm. how big a role alcohol plays in that sport. And I'm interested in your take on that because, given what you've talked about so far of this sort of this this very. Uh, we say pardon not what we go to a school uh, run by Quakers. There is a certain way of behaving that doesn't lend itself to let's get paralytic drunk and then watch a game of rugby because that's what you do. Yeah. So two things. First, I describe a bit of rugby in, in the book where where I, I play for the, the local village thirds. I mean, again, oh, my God, mm. what was the school thinking? This is a schoolboy. I was, I was um, 17 playing with guys who were probably in their 40s, local kind of um, bricklayers and and people who just wanted to go out and have a bit of a punch up on a Saturday afternoon because <laughs> amateur rugby was, I mean, d deeply, deeply violent in the 70s. And I'll come to your other point in a second. But I mean, I remember, you know, getting quite badly beaten up um, and and then uh, at half time drinking beer out of a watering can uh, before if you had your, your teeth left, you'd stick them back in and go 
go back onto the the cow dung infested field that we <laughs> played on. So that kind of coarse rugby was a thing in the seventies um, and isn't a thing now. I mean, you know, just to make it clear, as the school changed, I think rugby as a game has has changed and has certainly become um, safer and more inclusive and more thoughtful about itself. Uh, as a sport. There's absolutely no question about that. And I played for Winscombe Thirds, Winscombe Little Village in Somerset next to the school. And my goodness, Winscombe th- Thirds now would be would be safety conscious and, you know, there'll be a ladies team and there'll be proper behaviour and all the rest of it. Um, but your, your wider point about uh, alcohol and, and rugby, I, I, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case because I think professional rugby has now becomes such a thing and the quality of um, uh, the the players and the physical quality, the athleticism of the players means that that kind of old style paralytic booze infested stuff has has pretty much gone from the professional game. They might have a drink occasionally, but the idea of them all getting sloshed afterwards on the on the coach home, I, I just don't think is is the case. So I, I'm, I'm still going to make the case for rugby being uh, a clean living, decent occupation that is morally uplifting. And if everyone played it, uh, or at least watched it, we would all be hugely better off. My mum, as I say in the book, actually wanted, she was worse than me. She didn't like rugby at all. She didn't like anything involving balls, basically, including men. But she she, she had this vision of banning football. She wanted to ban football. She just thought, because she went through, as well as being a Quaker, she was a Maoist. She thought that the government should just do stuff to people. And at one stage, she thought all football should should just disappear. It was a time when there was a lot of fuss about football hooliganism in the 1970s. She just thought, get rid of it, ban uh, around balls. And I kind of, I sort of still, uh, she was wrong about so many things, but I still wonder if she was right about that. I would I, I would just chip in on that that when I was at, I was at Warwick University and I went just ahead of uh, I was sort of a few years ahead of you just not that you went to Warwick but um, we did interrail at exactly the same time when you were summer interrailing I was summer interrailing I also went to Yugoslavia not with the same consequences which you did which I want to uh, ask you about but at Warwick University at the time if there was any idiotic behaviour it was the rugby club mm. if there was any totally moronic, pathetic behavior that went on anywhere on campus. It was always the rugby club and it left me with a lifelong desire. I'm very happy watching rugby. I just don't want to meet <laughs> rugby crowds particularly. Yeah, but would Sorry you would that. you would you meet the football crowd? I I'd, I'd be I'd feel safer with the rugby crowd than the football crowd in a in a crowded train carriage going from A to B, wouldn't you? What about the Twickenham crowd as they have their their wonderful Range Rovers and their banquets uh, out of the back and they greet each other heartily. I don't mm. feel a part of that, really. Yeah, no. you are. We all are. We all are. It's part of the culture of the country. <laughs> Is that right? Okay. <laughs> I just, so here, just uh, on the subject, just, just uh, <laughs> on the book on a, and about the 1970s, which I always think gets a rough uh, press, Really, yes. because, you know, at the time, the 1970s, you know, this is self-evidently true, was modern. It was the, it was cutting edge. It was uh, it was the best, you know, the best decade because it's the most modern decade. And you have a uh, you say 
there was so this is you're about to head off on uh, on your magic bus and going off interrailing. Quote, there was a deadness in the eyes of Londoners in those days. And I said, when I read that, I said out loud, no, there wasn't. <laughs> so I would like to encourage you to justify that preposterous line that in the 1970s, there was a deadness in the eyes of Londoners. Oh, 100%. Because I think it's a fiction there. No, Justin, far from it. And the, the reason for the deadness was the cigarette smoke uh, and the general collapse of everything and the shabbiness and the way in which people shuffled around with no sense that this city had a future. And it, it really was as, as bad as that. It particularly, I mean, the country as a whole was going through all sorts of crises, though I am actually quite positive about the 70s as well. But London was uh, a dump. And while you were at Warwick, jollying around with, with the rugby boys, <laughs> I was actually at the London School of Economics. So I was here. Uh, I came to London in 1980. And the place was falling apart in quite a glamorous way. Um, but, you know, walk through Soho in 1980 and look into the eyes of people and you would absolutely 100% see that deadness. OK, fine. <laughs> uh, uh, Justin Webb says it's yeah. true. And, 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 you know, and I'll, I'll take that. Um, just so I'm so I'm off interrailing uh, in the summer of 1980, as I think if I've got my dates right. Mm. That's what you're doing. Mm. Uh, I had a train journey through Yugoslavia with the worst toilets of any train I've ever been on in my entire life. But you had a far more hair-raising experience. And uh, it's the kind of experience that actually stays with you and sometimes affects the rest of your life in terms of the way you approach everything, really, problems, family. And so can you just explain a little bit about what happened in the afternoon? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. It does affect the rest of your life. And what's really weird is that describing this in the book and, and in excerpts that people have, have come across, this experience on the magic bus, quite a few people have got in touch and said, yes, the same thing almost happened to me and I've never forgotten it. Or, or in a, occasionally actually it did happen to me. And what it was was a crash, but a pretty serious one. So we, you get the bus... Um, you never quite know what time it's going to go. It was, quite, it was the glamorous way of getting to Greece, and that's where my eventual destination was. But it would stop in Paris and in the middle of Europe somewhere in northern Italy. And then it would go down through Yugoslavia, which was um, bracing because it was still communist. Um, and although it wasn't quite part of the... Uh, the the Iron Curtain countries. It was still somewhere where you had to watch your your p's and q's. So that there was that aspect of it as well. But the bus the buses were driven by lunatics and were only vaguely kind of mechanically capable of making the journey. It was the most staggeringly uh, unsafe way to travel. But lots and lots of people, particularly young people, did do it, and it was um, incredibly cheap so we got as far as Yugoslavia and it was all kind of it was desperately uncomfortable but no, nothing more than that and then halfway through Yugoslavia and I can actually still weirdly see it so this was 1980 it was a long time ago we were going along uh, at high speed on the wrong side of the road with a driver who was absolutely exhausted I think he'd been driving for at least 24 hours without stopping and when I say without stopping I mean without stopping and um he, he he just misjudged the distance between vehicles and we kind of toppled, I mean, completely overturned down uh, a ravine is possibly too strong a word, but it was certainly a dip by the road. Um, 
and I talk about someone who must have been about my age who had been asleep on a seat two or three behind me and and died in it. Um, and we were all desperately shocked. I kind of ended up in a field with the rest of the passengers. Um, and eventually we were, well, actually we rescued ourselves. We got on a, a train, one of those trains you described, Simon, and went all the rest of the way to Greece. But that kind of early um, brush with death and with um, the shock of a road accident, um, a lot of people will have had. And yes, I think it does. I think it does leave a, a, an impact on you for the rest of your life. Um, I, I want to talk to you about um, something else in the 70s, which I think we're going to disagree on, um, Justin, uh, having having already set out our souls on rugby versus anything else. And that is rock music in the 1970s. <laughs> have we actually well, agreed on anything? No, I, so I don't far. think we have yet. And I don't think we're going to go agree on this because I would I would make the argument there is some phenomenal Music. I think we'd all agree phenomenal music comes out of these British Isles during the 1970s. What is your problem with Led Zeppelin and the lyrics to Stairway to Heaven? It's just Stairway to Heaven. That's all. And you've got a massive problem with the lyrics. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to make sense. It's just Led Zeppelin. I can't remember what the lyric is. It's absolute nonsense. All the, the, the there's a lady who oh, I don't know. <laughs> all of our thoughts are misgiven. That's yeah. the thing that really yeah. upset me. All of our thoughts are misgiven. What does that mean? No, but I, I have to say we mentioned this on our last podcast. If you, I hope you've got permission to use that lyric in the book because yeah. otherwise there'll be a very large bill yeah. coming your no, way. No, I know it's interesting writing. I never realised that. Not having written a book like this before, but you do, you do have to be quite cautious. And um, yeah, no, everything has been um, thoroughly bought. I think. Um, well, I hope anyway, just as yeah. well. Okay, uh, and uh, before. Um, before we're done with this uh, with this section, we'll do the Q and A in a in a separate podcast. I did my BBC impartiality course um, last week, and when I was doing it, I was thinking I would not like to be the person that does the impartiality course with any of the Today crowd because there is that you you must because I have you done your yeah course? I've done it mm-hmm. yes and did you spend the whole time thinking I have not spent an entire lifetime getting to where I am today to be told how to be impartial. By you, whoever you are. You know, I... Did that thought occur to No, you? honestly. I started off thinking like that. And then I thought, no, catch yourself on, as they say in Northern Ireland. Don't be silly. This is actually a really useful thing to do, to remind us, people who have the honour of working in the BBC. I don't want to sound too pompous about it, but I, I think it's a good thing, actually, just to underline to everyone sometimes how important it is to be impartial. And that doesn't mean not having and being able to make a judgment about stuff. And I was based in the United States for ages and and used to say um, things that I thought were true about the place. And actually, I still do in newspapers and the BBC approves it. So it's not it's not a kind of um, uh, uh, muzzling impartiality, but it is a genuine openness to a range of views. And And I think it's no bad thing in the BBC to remind ourselves occasionally that that is that's the business we're in, and if we don't like it, we ought to be doing something else. Do you think John Humphreys would have done an impartiality course? I, I can imagine the email that he would have sent, uh, and it is not impartial in my in my mind. It would be intensely partial. 
I used to have to do his safety courses for him. Someone would always be, be told to kind of fill in the form on his behalf and we, we staggered to the end of the road with John. Uh, Justin, you said at the beginning that you, you'd have written this as a novel if you could have done, um, but you decided but you decided not to. Have you got the taste for this? Is there, is there going to be uh, another? Will there be part two of your memoir? I don't know. There certainly won't be a personal memoir about adulthood because I think it's tough on people you know and, and I, I, I just wouldn't want to do it, actually. Um, uh, and also, frankly, I haven't lived an interesting enough life, so I don't think that's going to happen. But uh, I, I love the idea of, of writing. I enjoy writing. I actually really enjoyed writing the book. Um, so I, I don't know quite where it, it goes next, but I, I certainly would like to write something else. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Justin, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Um, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Justin's book is The Gift of a Radio, My Childhood and Other Train Wrecks. We've discussed a few of them, but it's a, fast, a really, really fascinating story and we appreciate you talking to us. We're going to do a Q&A with, with you on another podcast, but for the moment, Justin, thank you very much. Simon, thank you and Matt as well. And I'm sorry we've not agreed about it. But actually, I'm not sorry because it, yeah, it, makes, it, it makes it a zestier experience than oh, most yeah. podcasts. Not that you know. <laughs> ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.